0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very, pleased to have with us today, noted lecturer, educator, and rabbinic authority, Rabbi Yitzchak Breidowitz. Rabbi Breidowitz received ordination from Near Yisrael Rabbinical College and holds a Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School. Rabbi Breidowitz is Rabbi Emeritus of Woodside Synagogue, Ahavas Torah, in Silver Spring, Maryland and is a former professor at the University of Maryland School of Law. In April, 2010, Robert made Aliyah, moved to Israel and currently serves as a senior lecturer at Yeshivat Or Sameach in Jerusalem and as the Rav of Kehilas Or Sameach. And today we'll be discussing one of the most fascinating and seminal phenomenon of modern Jewish history, the Musser Movement. Well, Rightoitz, uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much; it's my honor.
0: Uh, just to get started, general overview: what what was the state of Eastern European Jewry in the early nineteenth century?
1: Yeah, the truth is, the nineteenth century is a particularly interesting century because so many things were happening, both in general culture and as a result within the Jewish world itself. Uh, you had forces of nationalism. Uh, that were going around that kind of created or fed into Zionism, at least in the secular political sense. Uh, you also had uh, the notion in many places of, although anti-Semitism certainly existed, but the notion of the collapse of the ghetto, in which Jews were given certain opportunities that they had formerly been denied, access to universities, the ability to open up businesses, uh, the collapse of the ghettoization, that had been imposed on Jews for literally centuries. Now, that may sound like a wonderful thing, but in point of fact, in terms of religion, in terms of Torah observance, it created enormous problems. In fact, there's an old Misa that when Napoleon was invading Russia, the Balatanya maintained, we ought to pray for the Tsar to be victorious instead of Napoleon, because Napoleon will liberate the body and destroy the neshama, the czar will enslave the body, and uh, as a result, the neshama will flourish. So the challenges of the 19th century uh, largely did involve the notion of uh, the growth of Reformed Judaism, the notion of secularism, what is called, of course, this is a name the other side gave themselves, the Haskalah, the enlightened ones. Now, Haskalah itself is an interesting phenomenon because they were maskele who, in fact, were shomer mitzvot, but they wanted to be involved in secular culture, somewhat like modern Orthodox today. There were, on the other hand, who were Kofrim, Apikorsim, Gemurim, who were not only Chotim, but Machi Yisarami. So as a result, once the ghetto walls collapsed, Jews were running in all sorts of directions. And the old solid order of limud HaTorah and Shemirat HaMitzvahs, was in fact undergoing a tremendous rupture, and a lot of things were collapsing. There was a special aid crisis among the younger people, the new generation, those who were leaving the shtetlach to go to the cities, the big cities like Warsaw, Vilna, uh, in which they were exposed to all sorts of currents of politics and secularism. So as a result, it was a very, very, very challenging time, uh, both for the non-Hasidic uh, Orthodox and the, the Hasidic world as well. And a number of movements or phenomena arose within Torah Judaism to address some of the challenges of this assimilation mode that became activated as a result of the collapse of the, of the ghetto. Musser as an intellectual history movement can be situated as one of the responses to Haskell. And I think we'll probably develop that as, as we go on.
0: Who, who was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter? Again, a brief biography of the man.
1: Rabbi Yisrael Salanter is a, again a fascinating person because uh, we don't know as much about him as you would suspect. To this day, it's not clear that we have anything that can be conclusively identified as a photograph of how he looked. Some people make various claims, and other people say it's not conclusive. So we don't even know exactly. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter looked. Rabbi Salanter was the son of a very prominent Talmud Chacham. Uh, so in a sense, in his earliest years, he was raised within the Litvisha Torah tradition of the Vilna Gaon in the proximity of Vilna. Salant was a kind of a village or a small town near, near Vilna. But at a very young age, even before his Bar Mitzvah, um, he was inspired by kind of a hidden subject, Rav Zundel of Salat, uh, who was a nister. Rav Zundel was a great Talmud Chachan. He was a Talmud of Rav Chaim of Olochon. But Rav Zundel made his living as a peddler, as a woodcutter, etc. And most people didn't necessarily pay that much attention to it. But Rav Yisrael, little Yisrael, intuited that Rav Zundel was much more than was visible on the surface. And he used to follow him around, and he would notice things about how Rav Zundel would get up at three in the morning to shovel the snow or leave food for the widow, doing all sorts of things that nobody would even know that he did. And Rav Yisrael was a spy. He was literally spying on him all the time. And at one point, Rav Zundel caught him, and Rav Zundel said to him, Yisrael, you want to serve Hashem, learn Muslim. And those were the words that kind of turned Rabbi Israel into a new path in life, in which he defined his role in life, his mission in life, uh, to learn Musser, absorb the teachings of Musser, and kind of communicate it uh, to others. They actually say another pivotal story, that he once saw a shoemaker, this may be legend, we don't always know if it's true, he saw a shoemaker... Uh, stitching together shoes, stitching it to the sole to the shoe. And it was getting very, very dark, and he was working by the light of a candle. This is before electricity. And Rabbi Sol said, How can you possibly work when it's so dark? And he said, As long as the candle burns, there's work to be done. He said it in Yiddish. And Rabbi Saul then said, Ah, and the shamma of a person is a candle. I got to work, I have to strive. Now, Rabbi Yisrael went through in his own life a number of changes and transformations because he was always looking for the way to serve Hashem and serve Am Yisrael. And it took, although Musr was always on the agenda, so to speak, but there were different aspects of it. For example, his derech of learning. He was naturally a very brilliant person. Besides being a Masmid, he was an Eloi. And initially, he was very much attracted to the idea of pilpul, of bringing together many, many different divergent texts and creating very complicated, very lengthy sequences of logic, which most people couldn't even follow and which overwhelmed people. But he thought that this showed the greatness of Torah, this showed the sweetness of Torah, the depth of Torah, and therefore he went out there with But then later he changed his mind and he said, "Pilpel is not Emmes. It may be ingenious. It may be brilliant. It may be a tour de force. But you're not really dealing with solid logic. And therefore he kind of turned into a little bit of what later became known as Rav Chaim's Derek, more analytical and logical. But then he changed his mind on that because he said that that relies too much on your assumption that your logic is Emmes. Maybe the Torah is working with a type of transcendental reasoning that may not make sense on the level of your human logic. So he went back to Pilpo. Different things like that. Um, he his family was in the Vilna area, but for most of the year he would wander from place to place. He had his core of Talmudin in Vilna, who were the great, great Talmudic e chachamim and the great leaders of the Muslim movement in the coming years. But Rabbi Yisrael only was there for a few months here, around the Chagim, etc. A lot of times he wandered through lonely outposts in France and Germany, where there were very, very, very few Orthodox Jews. And he was Makar of them before there was an Esha Torah, before there was an Arsameach. He was a one-man Kirov operation to bring Jews to Torah. So he had kind of two different types of missions on one, on, maybe three missions at least, on one level, he was a Rebbe and a mentor and uh, an inspiration to great, great eminent Talmidei Chachamin, who were shakua in learning, but he wanted to bring them in midos Tovos and Yiras Hashem, that they should become Gedolim Mamish, right? Those were his Vilna Talmud. And then he wanted to appeal to the simple balabais who was from, who was Shomer Mitzvah's. Who could not open up a Gemara, but he wanted that person too to grow in Avoda Sashem. And that's why the Muslim movement was also had a popularist or a populist bent to kind of get the average person involved in the Mesila Shesharia. And then finally, there was a for Rechokan bent in which he went to places where there literally were few, if any, Orthodox Jews. So he had, in some ways, a sad life, I'm not sure he would describe it that way, because most of the time he was separated from his, family, from his family, his wife and children. Most of the time he was separated from a community that could truly understand him and his depth. And it is also said that he himself suffered from depression that he sometimes spoke about. We don't really know all the, all the details about uh, about that. Uh, he did die in, uh, I think it was Paris, or at least in France, in abject poverty, having nothing nothing at all. And uh, there's even a tradition, some of these stories, we don't know if they're true, but there's a tradition that uh, he was dying in the presence of an old man with whom he shared a room. And when he sensed that the old man was afraid to be in the room with a dying man, Rabbi Yisrael spent his last moments on earth reassuring the person that a corpse is only a corpse, it's nothing to be scared about. His very death was bracketed within an act of loving kindness and an act of of chesed. So he was a very, very extraordinary person. Uh, Basically, he wrote very little. We have a few things that he wrote, some of the Orgis of Israel, some of letters and the like. Most of what we know about him, just as, I mean, La as what we know of Socrates, is really from Plato. So Lahavdil, much of what we know, we know about resource Salanter is not from resource Salanter himself, but from his Talmidim, Ravitzel Peterberger, Petterberger, that's Blazer Yitzchel Glazer, Rav Amsterdam, uh, the altar of Kellum, who was the Talmud Muglik, at the altar of Slobodka. Uh, and we kind of know Rabbi Yisrael from the Talmidim that he produced. He was a very, very private person. He did not talk about himself that much. He did not even reveal everything that was going on inside of him. Uh, the famous statements, not everything you think uh, you should say, and not everything you say you should write, not everything you, uh, you write you should print, that actually originated from a himself. So as famous as he was in some ways, it was the tip of the iceberg. 99% of him was concealed. And that was by uh, that was by design. But as I say, looking at his Talmudim, who became more prominent in some ways, we can get a sense of the greatness of this person.
0: Given all the um, events that were happening, which the which, uh, Rav had described uh, earlier, um, and I recall an anecdote whereby Rabbi Yisrael was once uh, in, in davening, he was in, in prayer, and he saw a, a, a righteous, a religious Jew, putting on his, his prayer shawl, his talent and whipping somebody with the, with the strings in the eye, and that kind of like so how did he view the Jewish people of his times? What was the lens that he saw that, that, that propelled him to do the things that he did?
1: So again, uh, Musser itself is, is a more complex, multifaceted movement than you might assume. But there is absolutely no question that one of the great cornerstones of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's version of Musser was Bein Adam LeChaveru. He saw uh, in Vilna. He saw great Hamadei Chachamim. He saw learning. He saw Shmirat Mitzvot. But at the same time, he saw that sometimes when it came to interpersonal relationships, people were rude, people were cruel, people were inconsiderate, people were not always thinking. Now, again, it may not be that somebody was a bad person or a mean person, but they just weren't thinking about the impact of their actions on other people. And Rabbi Solange, again, and all of this is based on Kazao, in a sense, Rabbi Yisrael claimed he was not innovating anything at all. He was simply re-emphasizing some ideas that people were paying less attention to uh, by virtue of what was uh, going on in their lives. And story after story after story highlights the exquisite sensitivity he had to the feelings of another person. The famous aphorism uh, that he said, don't be tzaddik on somebody else's chashmi. You want to be firm, you want to be tzaddik. so you want to inconvenience others, you want to create uh, burdens on other people. That's not sitkas. that's not righteousness. You got to look at the other person, or his famous statement his gashmi is, his physical needs is my ruchmi is. My spiritual imperative is to worry about those physical needs. So, an example that you mentioned where somebody swings their talis and the sittkas hit someone. That would be exactly one of the things that Rabbi Slyon would focus on tremendously. He says, how can you try to be mekayim, a mitzvah of and pray to HaKadosh Baruch and envelop yourself in a talis that has all sorts of kabbalistic associations of being connected to the Shekhinah? And you're doing so by not thinking about the hurt you may be inflicting on another person. Or there are stories about he saw a person before Yomim Narayim who was in a very serious, somber mood, and uh, he was looking down at the ground and frowning because he was making a chesh and the nefesh. And Rabbi Sol said, you know, just because he's doing tshuva, I have to suffer his unpleasant countenance and the like. He said, a person's face is a rishosarabim. It's a public domain. And therefore, the same way you can't dig pits, in a public domain that people might fall, you cannot present yourself as angry or, or sad in a way that would disturb people or upset people. So their mamish is story after story. You know, the great uh, repository of these stories There was a rabbi who lived in Ertesova, Dov Katz, who was an old uh, Muslimnik from before World War Two, who wrote, uh, I think it was, I think it may be five volumes, four or five volumes, called Tsunu Asan Muser. And volume one, which is the largest of the volumes, is devoted exclusively to a resourceful actor. So you literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of stories. Now again, we don't know if all of them are true, but as they say by a similar issue with the Khapitzhayam, even if the story is not true, the fact that they don't tell those stories about us indicates that at least they were plausible and they were consistent with uh, that rabbi's, that Godel's character and and the like. You know, I'll tell you one story that ties into this again, that um, he was once invited, in his travels to Germany, he was once invited to a Talmud who lived in Germany, Talmud's house for Shabbos, Friday night, and the Talmud says it would be such an honor, you know, what we do is we go for hours and hours and hours, we have Divrei Torah, we have Zemiros, we eat Lechavot Shabbos, but then the Sudha goes on for six or seven hours of Kedusha and with the Rebbe presence, there'll be nothing like it. So the Salantzir said, I will go to you on one condition that from Kiddush to Birkas hamazon will be no longer than a half an hour. A 30-minute meal. So the Talmud wanted to have his Rebbe, so he agreed, but he really, really was heartbroken because it was fast and they ate and they benched and there was, no, there was nothing going on. And we saw Solanker then said, can I talk to the cook? Because he was a wealthy man. He had a cook in the kitchen. And he said, and so the cook came out, a woman came out. And he said to the cook, I want to ask your mechila for rushing you today. Because I know that normally the meal is very long. And I did we did the meal in a half an hour. Please forgive me for the inconvenience. So the cook said, Rebbe, this is the greatest gift you ever gave me in my life. I'm a widow. And I have a 10-year-old son at home, and I'm never able to have a Shabbos meal with my son because by the time we're finished here, it's one o'clock here or two o'clock and my son is asleep. And Baruch Hashem, you gave me the opportunity to spend time with my son. Rabbi Yisrael Slandre looked at his Talmud and said, what do you think is better to have a seven-hour meal of Sumiros and divri Toa where an almana cannot be with her child or maybe to skip some of that, so the almanac can come home. What do you think? And this is this was typical. This is this is Rabbi Saul Salander. He was raising our consciousness in Bein Adam LaChavir. And I do want to point out that sometimes Rabbi Saul's message is a little distorted, as if to say, Musr is only about being a nice person to other people. It obviously is an extremely important aspect of Musa. But Rabbi Selantre also talked a lot about Yiras Hashem, Yiras the idea of Zihiros and mitzvahs. The Rebisau says Rebisau Selantre was an Eloi, but he was an Eloi in the sense that he was always looking how to apply sugyas and Gemara to the new situations of life. Meaning, And he actually was machadesh many chumras, Many ways of keeping the halacha in a better way, based on his deep understanding of the Torah. So it was not only a Bein Adam Lechaveru; it was a Bein Adam L'makom as well. To understand that the Torah is the Dabar Hashem, and we have to take it seriously. We have to be Mavatal ourselves to Hashem's Torah, and not just allow our comforts or our arrogance to kind of pave the, the way for wherever we want we want to go.
0: What were some of the practical programs that Rav Yisrael initiated? I, for example, recall reading about an encounter between Rav Yisrael Solanter and Shimshon Referral Hirsch in Germany, where Rav Solanter typically humbled himself before Rav Hirsch and was trying to figure out whether he should translate Rav Hirsch's works into Russian and bring it back to Russia. What were the practical programs that propelled him to be considered father of the Muslim movement?
1: Yeah, Rabbi Saul Solander was totally focused on mission and not on ego. And therefore, if he felt he could learn something from anybody, Chacham, Halomid he was willing to do so. He understood that Germany, now Germany was not his milieu, uh, Rabbi Saul is was the Litvish of Vilna culture of intensive Torah learning. And yet, he knew that Rav Hirsch had done wonders in Germany, Germany, which was decimated by the reform movement. Rav Hirsch in Frankfurt built Ekehila, and both through his writings and through his communal leadership. We sometimes don't, you know, we're so used to Rav Hirsch as a Torah writer, we also don't realize, and, and actually that's his permanent contribution, but we don't realize what an absolutely masterful, wonderful community builder he was in taking Frankfurt, which had been a glorious Torah center, but had become totally decrepit uh, in terms of orthodoxy, in terms of Torah. Rav Hirsch built it up. He revived it. He made it a glorious example of Torah true to Judaism. And we saw Slandre was makir that Rav Hirsch's derech Torah and derech Eretz was not the Lithvish way, it was not the way of Poland, not the way of Russia. But he saw that it worked. And if it worked, if it was a way that many, many Jews would be reconnected to Hashem, he wanted to explore whether that was feasible to adapt, with some modifications perhaps. So he very much uh, spoke to Rav Hirsch about translating uh, some of Rav Hirsch's works into, into Hebrew, which would be uh, the language of the Lithuanian uh, Jew and, uh, and the like. And he had other programs as well. Uh, Some of them uh, never got off the ground, but he was uh, thinking of translating the Talmud into German. He actually hired some scholars uh, to work on this because he thought that he could expose German university students to Talmudic analyses, and that could bring them to Hashem. Again, I'm not sure that got off the ground, but those are some of the things he was thinking about. Uh, Trade schools. Uh, to give impoverished uh, people some avenues of Parnassa. And of course, uh, the, the famous uh, base Musar, uh, the idea that there ought to be designated areas, not just a shoal or a base Medrash or a yeshiva, but a designated area, a separate house or a separate room that would be stocked with Sifrei Musar, Mesila Shishorim, Chobas Halavavos, Nefesh, which was Rabbi results one of his favorite. Uh, books, in which people could come in for 15 minutes or a half an hour and they could work on their midos and try to become a better person and engage in and nefesh and introspection and speaking to God. And he wanted this to be non-elitist, although, again, his Talmidim were the elite of the elite. But he wanted this to be a program and a tachnit for every simple Yid to grow in their avodah uh, Hashem, and to recognize themselves as important and beloved by HaKadosh by Now, in Musar itself, he had two different shitos in how one learns Musr. There is what is called Musar B'iyan, in which one contemplates the intellectual and philosophical nature of an idea, and you ponder it the same way you learn a sugya in Gemara, you learn a sugya in Musar, Amunah, B'kacham, what do these concepts mean? But then he recognized that the intellect does not always transform the emotions. And therefore, he, he wanted there to be an aspect of Musar. That's his palus. His pilos means emotional arousal, in which you would take a maimer chazal that inspired you, and you would just say it or sing it over and over and over again, a hundred times. So just like you sing a nigum, a hundred times you get into it, you know, eventually, instead of switching your nigum every every two minutes. And that was Musser for the purpose of emotional arousal. The idea is that rep- repetition can put you in a certain emotional place that you also otherwise wouldn't be. And he recognized we needed both of those tools. Uh, we needed the intellectual understanding of these ideas, and we needed ways to emotionally arouse ourselves. So we had, and then there was a third uh, idea in Musser, There's Musr bi'ion, Musr bi'hispalos, and then there's the Musr v'ad, which today we might call group therapy in a sense. But this is where you get together with Chaveyna. And you discuss the Lemaisa. You're not just learning a book, but you're saying, what I did wrong to you. What did I do? Uh, I lost my temper because of so-and-so. And And then they would discuss it. What's your trigger? What, in other words, self-understanding, self-analysis in which Haverim, who care about you, would help you understand the struggles that you're going through, and you, of course, would help them in the same way. Uh, people sometimes forget that the musar was an absolutely essential component of Rabbi Sol teachings, because if all you have are the Sifre uh, you know you don't yet know how to apply it to the particulars of your life. And Musser, above all, is about changing yourself and growing, and therefore you have to go from theory to practice. And the Musser was the great bridge that brought the theory uh, into the actual practice of life. So these were some of his some of his ideas. Now, even though Rabbi Sallantra was universally acknowledged, as a great, great tzaddik and a big Thomas Chachem as well. But his Musr plans were surprisingly controversial. One wouldn't imagine that this would generate a lot of controversy. I mean, who's against Midos Tovos? Who's against sensitivity? Who's against adam Lechaveru, where the Torah talks about the half Re'echo reaction? And yet, there were people that were against Musr, and I'm talking about prominent people, great Rosh Hashivas in Volazhan, the world-famous Volazhan Yeshiva. Uh, they did not accept, so to speak, the Musa movement. The briskers did not, and to some degree still do not accept it. But not because, this is very important, not because they consider the goals to be unimportant. I don't believe there's any gadol that in any way would ever diminish the goals of Musr. But the belief of many was that Limud Hatayra itself will refine your character that if you're a true Talmud Chachan and you're learning or you don't need to look at other books to build up your character the Torah itself will be and therefore they thought that Musser in a sense was undermining the intrinsic spiritual greatness of so they saw it as a bit of a heretical movement in that way and another aspect was that because Musser focused so much on introspection and self-understanding, it sometimes did draw on psychology, certain insights that you got from even the secular world. Now, whether Rabbi Solzhenitsyn borrowed from Freud or not, is still a little bit of a controversial question. Maybe it's a painful question. It's a debatable question. Rabbi Lanter does talk about the subconscious and the unconscious. And this is around the same time as Freud. Again, just because they're both talking about it doesn't mean that one took from the other. But certainly the later Mustard did, Ravolva, you know, which is already a third or fourth generation, uh, was an apprentice as a young man to Jean Piaget, who was a prominent child psychologist in Switzerland, and he did develop certain insights from that. So as a result, some of the of Musr felt that you're diluting Torah by kind of borrowing concepts from outside of Torah. So the Musr movement was surprisingly controversial uh, in its time. Um, we even have some incidents of uh, student violence in Tells when, when Rabbi Eleazar Gordon, uh, the great uh, Guttel, who was the founder of Telz. Uh, wanted Rabbeinu Chasmon, who a Talmud of Talmud, to be the Mashgiach and bring Musr, Some of the elder Bacharim didn't want it, and there are unfortunate stories that uh, they, uh, you know they, they 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 extinguish the the lights and they uh, they tarred and feathered Rabbeinu chasman Something. Like of course, when I hear that story, as sad as it is, in a sense, it almost proves the need for Musr. <laughs> we don't need Musr, and therefore we're going to tire and feather you and throw you out of town. Well, that gufa is the raya while you do need uh, Musser uh, and and the like. I remember of Dove Katz who wrote the classic multi-volume Tunuas Musser. I remember as a yeshiva boy, single boy, more than 50 years ago, we had heard there was a companion volume that was really out of print called The Fight Against Musr, which he printed separately with a much more limited circulation. So as yeshiva boys I uh, like to do, we we definitely wanted to get a hold of that one to read all of the gossip and the like. Eventually I did get a hold of it, and again it's 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 interesting, it's shocking, uh, but but it shows you that when we saw Solatra uh, you know, did not have an easy going. In fact, even Slobotka, I guess maybe it will come a little later, uh the original yeshiva in Slobotka was a non Muslim Yeshiva. And the altar of Slobodka had a breakaway called Knesset Israel, after a social Slander, where Musser became a very, very predominant part of the curriculum. So, Jews, liked, Jews have makhloksim over everything, and even the Musur, uh is an example. Uh, the Chazenish, Uh somebody once asked him if he uh, was a supporter of the Musser movement or, or not. The Chazaynish said an interesting thing. He said, I am against the Shita Samoser, but I'm against the Misnagdim of the Shita Samoser even more. Meaning, he said that the proponents of the Shita Samoser were Gedolim, were Kadoshim, their Kavana was the Shem Shamayim. I have disagreement with certain techniques. The Misnagdim of the Moser are often people who are not acting, menshlach, and lack of deracherets. So he says, the misnagdim of Mus'er are worse than whatever disagreement I have with the Muslim movement itself.
0: So, getting to, that, getting to that topic, who were of those main disciples, how did they carry on Muslim movement?
1: Yeah, so Rabbi Israel actually, of course, he never had a yeshiva. I mean, for a short time in his life, he actually was a yeshiva, but he left that position. And again, legend has it, and it might be true, that because there was a person that he was replaced, that he was replacing, when he discovered he was replacing somebody, he left the job because he didn't want to be responsible for someone losing their parnassus. That would be a, a typical that we saw a response. But after that, he never really had a yeshiva. He taught that uh, Talmudim privately, small groups. But he did have many, many Talmudim. And his Talmudim fall into different groups. He had Talmudim who became Gedailim, Bali Musar. He had Talmidim who became businessmen and Balabatim, uh, etc. But among his Talmidim, there are qu- quite a few, but I'll mention maybe uh, three of them. Uh, and that is, uh, the, the probably the one who was closest to him was of Simcha Zissel Brady, who is, or sometimes of Simcha Zissel if the last names are always not clear. And he was known as the Altar, the old man of Kelum. Kelum was a city, on the German-Lithuanian border. And that's where he started a yeshiva based on the teachings of Rav Solantar. So that's the altar of Kelim. Kelim tended to be the breeding ground for virtually all of the later Bali Muslim, Rav Dessler, and the like, Rav Elia etc. Then we had Rav Yitzchak Blazer, who at one point in his life was the Rav in St. Petersburg, Russia, so he's known in Yiddish. As Ravitzel of And Beseif Yamav, he came to Eretz Israel and he died in Eretz Israel in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and the third is also an altar. So we have the altar of Kelim, and uh, we have uh, Ravitzel Petrberger, who's not called altar. And then we have uh, the altar of Navardic, Rav Yisef Yaisel Harvitz. And then we might have a third altar. Uh, Rav Nassim Svi Finkel, uh, the altar of Slobotka. Now, the altar of Slobotka, not so clear. You could really classify him as a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael He did know Rabbi Israel and he learned from Rabbi Israel, the Saif Yama of Rabbi Israel, But essentially, the altar of Slobodka was really a Talmud of Rav Simcha of Kalim, although he developed a different Shita. What's oh and, and I should add also Ravnateli Amsterdam. I think I mentioned five Palmidim. So we have um, the altar of Kalim, Ravnatoli of Amsterdam, Ravitzel Petroburger, uh, the altar of Navarrdik, and the altar of Slobodka. Although I say hey, Alter of Slobodka is more properly a Talmud of Simcha Zissel. And these all of these personalities became very, very great and very well known in the Torah world. Uh, the altar of Slobodka and Ravitzel Petroburger were in Slobodka. As Rav in became a big place of of growth. Uh, Rav Simcha Zissel had his own ma'asad in Kalim. But what's interesting is, you know, there's a children's story of uh, they call the Seven Blind Men and an Elephant. Meaning, seven blind people feel an elephant, and they're asked to describe what it feels like. So the person who felt the ears said, "An elephant is a gigantic butterfly." Uh, the person who felt uh, the trunk said the elephant is a big eel. And the person who felt the leg says, oh, the elephant is like a tree. Now, the upshot is each description is correct, but each is only a partial description of a whole. Rabbi Sol Solancher was so multifaceted, so to speak, that different Talmidim pulled out different Jirachim. And therefore, the Kelam Shita of Musr was different than the Slabatka Shita of Musar, And the Slabatka Shita of Musr was different than the Nabardic Shita of Musr. And each one emphasized different aspects of Rabbi Srao's teachings. Uh, the altar of Kelem, who probably was the closest to Rabbi Sraal he had spent the, the greatest number of years. So Kelam was all about inner discipline, self-mastery, and fostering calmness rather than agitation. Because there is this concept that when you're nervous, when you're agitated, you're not thinking straightly. Now, I think even in um, military surgeons, combat surgeons, who have to do things very, very quickly, I think uh, there's a saying, uh, you know, if somebody has a torn artery, he says, you can fix it in two minutes if you don't rush. If you rush, you're going to mess up. So Kellum was all about developing a certain inner calmness along with discipline. So you never got flustered. You never got excited. And because of this, in Kellum, there, there were all sorts of, we might even call them crazy, character-building exercises. So, for example, um, after a thymus, when a person is very hungry and they tend to eat quickly, So in Kellum, they would serve fish with a lot of bones, which forces you to take a little bit at a time. Or if you got a letter or a food package from home, you have to wait 24 hours before opening it. It shouldn't just be, you know, I rushed to do it. Or uh, you have to get up in the middle of the night for a five-minute learning session. No more, no less. What's the purpose of a five-minute learning session in the middle of the night? Because, you know, they wake you up 10 minutes. you got to get dressed in five minutes, meaning you can't afford to be one or two minutes late. Um, and that teaches you the discipline of time. Rav Yaakov told the story. Of course, he was in Kelum after the altar of Kelum died. That when he was 16 years old, he came to Kelum and, uh, you know, to absorb the Musr of Kelum. And at one point, it was a day of Kriya Torah. And uh, the Gabbai thought there was no Kohen and was about to call up Yisrael. And Yaakov noticed a Kohen had walked in. So he went over to the Gabai and said, oh, there's a Kohen here. So after davening, uh, the Gabbai went over to him and said, I want to thank you for pointing out that there's a Kohen, uh, but you have a knas of, of one ruble or something like that. He says, why? He says, because in Chalam, we don't look around who comes in and who comes out. We focus on what we're doing etc. So Kellum was always about the notion of discipline, but it was not, but again, it's interesting, self-discipline, but not in a context of anxiety, but in a sense of calmness, deliberation, thinking before you acted. Right? That was kind of what ke- the mark of Kellum. The altar of Slobodka, who of course was a Talmud of the altar of Kellum, had a bit of a different emphasis, again, not contradicting necessarily, in which he emphasized godless order, that instead of focusing on you know, all of my faults, I should recognize the greatness of man, their creativity, their potential. And through that godless order, I will become a greater person because I want to grow. I want to become the person I'm able to become. That's why in Stilberka, there was such a developed, such an emphasis on individuality. Slobodka had Gedolim, Rav Huttner, and Rav Aaron Cutler, and Rav Yaakov Kamineski, and my own Rosh Hashim, Rav Yaakov Ruderman, Rav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, Disri and actually many, 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 many more. And the hallmark is that everybody was unique. Everybody was different. Everybody, and in fact, in fact the downside is, Slobotka has had its share of creative courses. This is always the risk of creating a money based on individuality. Because when you're not trying to produce cookie cutter imitations, then everybody's going to gravitate to their particular niche. So on one hand, I think it's fair to say, some would disagree maybe, that vodka produced the greatest number of Godola and perhaps the greatest number of Apikorsin. Because that's what individuality does. That's why even today When a person starts a yeshiva, a person has to think, how much leeway do I want to give people to grow in their own particular ways, and the like. So if Kellum emphasized self-mastery, discipline, and inner calm, Slobodka emphasized greatness, individuality, creativity, and the like. Novartic, in many ways, was the most eccentric of the schools, maybe the most extreme of the schools. Uh, the altar of the Vardic himself spent uh, almost two years locked up in a house like a hermit in which people had to feed him food through holes in the wall. In fact, the Arach HaShulchan was the rabbi of the Vardic, And people went to the Arach HaShulchan and said, this guy is crazy, let's tear down the house. And the, and, and the Arach HaShulchan said, I don't understand Rav Eizel Horace. I don't understand Rav Eizel's but he's an ish Let's leave him alone. But after those two years, he established a hundred yeshivas in the middle of Russia, which endured in the darkest moments of Stalin. It was Nevardek and Chabad that kept Torah alive in the Soviet Union uh, during the Stalinist era. No matter what. So the semel of Nevardek is unconditional emuna and bitachayin Hashem that you never ask the question, can I do this? You simply ask the question, is this something that is worthwhile to do? If it is, then you start doing it with the certainty that somehow Hashem is going to come through. Now, this was actually an issue in which the Chazinish had I mean, part of the Chazinish's issue was, with Musa is actually a particular issue with Nevarna, because the Chazinish maintained that the notion of gamzu Tova and koma to Avod Latav doesn't mean you'll always get, you know, what it is that you want. Rather, even when there are defeats and failures, you know, that's also Hashem's ultimate rassum. Navardic seem to have a different view of Amunah, that if you have Amunah, it's gonna come. And, and the like. In like fact, they tell a the story about one of the later Rosh Hashim's of the Novartic Yeshiva in France, Rev Gershon Liebman, that he once came to America for fundraising, and a certain Talmud saw him in the airports and said, oh, Rebbe, can I give you a ride? And the Rosh Hashim said, yes, I, I, thank you very much. And as they're driving, the Talmud has a certain question he wants to ask his Rebbe. He's not sure if he could ask his Rebbe the question. He said, you know, Rebbe, I know that you didn't know I was going to be at the airport. And I know you don't carry money on you. But you didn't. So I'm just wondering exactly, if I wouldn't have been here, how would you have gotten to the place you needed to go? So Rav Gershon Liebman said, you were there, weren't you? What's the problem? <laughs> I knew <laughs> somebody would be there. I didn't know who. Right, so that's the unconditional unmovedness. So in a sense, we have these three different strands. We have the inner calm, of self discipline we have the godless of creativity and we have the radical unconditional emuna and betahay that hashem will always give you the tools that you need to carry out your job and each of them emphasized these different things and these are all pieces that they pulled off the great tree that Rabbi Yisrael solarander
0: was what are some of the primary Musar Svarim books uh, <clears throat> that are utilized today? And, and previously, the Rav had mentioned that there was um, a negative response coming out of the Lazian, but you have the Lazian, and uh, Mavchayim the Lazian is Nefesh Ha'chayim, which is a Musar safer. So, <laughs> what are some of the Musar Svarim that are used, and, and how does that relate to a safer like Nefesh Ha'chayim?
1: You know, it's very, very interesting that in many, many ways, Rav Chaim Volojner and the Vilna Gon himself are in some ways the fathers of the Muslim movement. Uh, in the case of Rabbi Yisrael, this is very, very clear. Rabbi Yisrael was influenced by Rav Zundel of Salant, who talked about the importance of Mussar. Rav Zundel of Salant was a Talmud muvak of Rav Chaim Volojner. Rav Chaim was the Talmud muvak of the Vilna Gon. So clearly there was this messiah of Mussar. Um, the very first safer of the Gong that was printed after his death was the Perish HaGra al Mishle. Not the Gra in Shulchan Aruch and not the Gra on Kabbalah, uh, but on Mishle. And the reason was because Rashis Chachma Yir Hashem and Mishle is a safer and the Gra's Parish is a safer. That is a book of Musr. Indeed, it is a book of, of, of Musr and, and the like. But I'm told that Nefesh itself was not studied in the Yeshiva. As strange as that sounds, because the Icar emphasis was on Liman HaTayre itself. Um, but in terms of uh, what are the, the Sifri Musr, again, there are many, many Sifri Musr, and the new ones are produced all the time. Uh, first of all, there's a whole genre of Musr literature that predates Rabbi Soslav, right? He didn't invent... The genre of Muslim literature. We have the Chovas going back to the 10th century or the, the 11th century. Uh, we have the Masiva Sheshorim of the Ramchal. We have the Orchos Sadikim. Um, you know, many, many Svarim from the Rishonim, uh, the Shari Chuva, and other Svarim of Rabbeinu Yonim. Right? So these are from Rishonim themselves, a great Sifri Musar. But from Rabbi Yisrael, we have the Or Yisrael, which is really put out by Rabitzel Petterberger. Uh, in fact, uh, there's not that much of Rabbi Yisrael Salantra's own words there, but essentially a lot of Rabbi Yisrael's Torah is there. Uh, and then, uh, later, we have a from the altar of uh, Kelim, and uh, the great Talmidim of the altar of Kelim, which is Mihtav of Rabbi Dessler. Uh, he was not, well, his father was a Talmud of the altar of Kelim, but Dessler is already two generations. Uh, but Mihtem itself is a very, very interesting. It is one of the most popular musar swarm that people learn. But some of the Bali Musr contended it was not pure Musr. because Elio is a philosophical book, number one. And number two, it also draws on Hasidus and Tababa. And the classical Rabbi Yisrael Lantern Musr uh, did not really uh, borrow from Hasidus and certainly did not at least openly use Kabbalah. So Rabbi Dessler, my, maybe I shouldn't say it this way, was actually considered a little bit of a traitor uh, to the purity of the Muslim movement. But I think he was certainly faithful to the ultimate objective. If the ultimate objective of, of Mussar is to bring people to his slavos in Avoda Sashem, then it's understood that there may be different particular ways of doing it depending on the Tzorech ador. So Rav Dessler brought in Maharal, Dessler brought in Rav Tzadon, Rav Dessler brought in Svas Emes, Rav Dessler brought in Tanya, uh, as it were, besides Nefesh and Chavos HaLvavos and all of the standard uh, Muslim books. So Rav Dessler is one of the most popular, and of course Rav Dessler's uh, great Talmud, Rav Chaim Freelander, continued in that Mahalach, and those are very, very excellent books, uh, but again, they go a little, little bit beyond uh, the pure Musar because they embrace general inyanim of Hashkatha, which are, you know, very, very important. And then you have Rav Volpa, uh, the Ali Shur. Uh So, you know, those are just a few of the great, great uh, skarim uh, that, that, that we have. And as I say, you will find that they do integrate different streams more so than perhaps the older. Uh, Musr uh, did.
0: Talking about Hasidus, the historical connection between the Hasidic movement, which predated the Musr movement, what's the connection between those two movements historically?
1: Yeah, so one way of looking at it is that both of them are responses to the challenges of emancipation and Haskalah. Uh, meaning, you had this idea that Jews are getting emancipated, which means they're getting secularized, they're getting exposed to modern ideas that are antagonistic to the Torah, and we have a real challenge here. We're losing people, we're losing neshamas, we're losing young people who are going off to all sorts of other jirachim, whether it's secular education, whether it's political agitation, whether it's communism, whether it's secular Zionism. So in many, many ways, you can actually look at both Musra and Hasidus as two efforts to kind of arouse passion and fervor and connection to Torah to keep you within the meskeret of Shemiras Torah and mitzvahs. So in fact, we actually find that part of why, you know, the Vilna Gaon had many problems with Hasidus in the early years of Hasidus uh, but but interestingly enough, Rav Chaim although he had his disagreements, but Rav Chaim was much more conciliatory. There were Hasidim learning in Volashner and the like. Uh, they say Ravitzel of Volashner had hasidic Shisfarim that he learned from. Uh, and some claim that even the Nefesh Chayim may have been influenced by the Tanya. Okay, that's again an open question, but there's a little bit of support for that because much in the Nefesh Chayim, does echo the Tanya that had been printed a few years earlier. Uh, but again, I can't make, make the claim. Uh, but when Rav was asked at one point, like, why is he moving away from the uh, attitude of his own Rebbe, the Vilna Gom? He basically responded that, you know, uh, Haskalah is a common enemy that's bigger than both of whatever Machlux and we have. Hasidus, Mishnagdis, whatever, whatever you want to call it, okay. These are the. These is the kehilah of Shomrei Torah mitzvahs. There's a common thread out there of taking people away from Torah and mitzvahs. We have to come together, and that that I think is the is the approach. Ad hayom hazeh, in terms of Hasidim and, and non-Hasidim uh, getting uh, getting together. So I think they both have a, a common feature of fighting a common enemy. But it's more than that. It's not just they're fighting a common enemy. I think they do have much in common in terms of what they represent. And they represent what you might say an emphasis on the internalization of mitzvahs. That mitzvah should not just be superficial actions, but they should be based on feeling, on thoughts, on preparation, on refinement, uh, as the Zohar says, Ava Hashem and Yira Hashem are the wings that carry your mitzvahs up to Shemayim. And I think both Hasidus and Musar taught that. Now, there may be a, a difference in emphasis. Of course, there is. Like that's what Nefesh is addressing. That Hasidus may have emphasized the internal spiritual element to such a great degree that sometimes the practical halacha was denigrated. And that's what Rav Chaim B'lash is constantly talking about in the Nefesh The Iker is the Misa. So what always happens in Judaism is that a movement arises and emphasizes certain nekudots, which are very important. But then you kind of need a counter movement to bring out the other nekudots. And the truth is going to lie in the dialectical push and pull between the two movements. Uh, meaning, there is much in Hasidus that we need to incorporate in the Litfeshit tradition, and there is much in the Litfeshit tradition that needs to be incorporated. In Hasidus, there needs to be cross-fertilization. And once again, uh, Rev. Dessler was someone who saw that very, very, very clearly in the integration that he affected in his masterful work, Mechtav B'Eli
0: What's an example of a Musr exercise that was perhaps developed by the early Musr movement proponents that you, the Rav, would recommend doing?
1: Well, uh, there are many. And again, Rav Volva in Chalik Shani of Alishu. And if you ever look at the two Halakim, you will notice Chalik Shani is much fatter, much bigger than Chalik Rishon. Chalik Rishon is more of the academic theory of Musr are the kind of ways of having musr vadin and, and dealing with exercises and, and the like. Well, uh, you know, one example would be that uh, for a week, and again, one of Ravi Sosalantra's points was that you change yourself gradually, meaning to say, take on small incremental goals, because then success builds on success and you're more likely to persevere that if you take on some very big goal in which the first time you fail, you're not going to be able to go on after that. So an idea might be that uh, for the two days of this week, every person I meet in the base medrash, I'm going to force myself force myself to smile and say, good morning, how are you? Now, that may sound easy, but the truth is it actually is not so easy. You know, we're not always in a good mood. You know, we're not always, uh, you know, I want to talk to somebody. Sometimes I want to keep to myself. But you kind of force yourself to go beyond your comfort zone. And we saw how that that was a very important way of training yourself uh, to kind of become a better person by forcing yourself to do something, at least on a small level, that would not be natural for you. Or uh, outside of another machavera, you might decide that uh, you're not going to have cake except on Shabbos or something like that. That's healthier anyway, but it's also an issue of breaking a title. You don't have to have the cake uh, and, and the like. So really it involves picking something that's moderately difficult for you, not, not excessively difficult, but moderately right. difficult, in which you can take it on for a limited amount of time and then kind of measure your success in breaking habits, reforming habits, changing habits. Because habituation is a very important part about Musser. Uh The Sefer Achimach already said that instead of our actions being the product of emotion, what is often the case is our actions can educate our emotions. So, you know, some people feel very uncomfortable faking a smile because they feel that everyone knows it's a fake. So it's hard to fake a smile. But if you force yourself to fake a smile, you might actually feel that positive feeling towards somebody. Adam, nifal, kifi, So those are kind of the things your Israel would talk about.
0: I recall hearing many years ago Rabbi uh, Akiva Tats of Or speaking primarily to a South African group, um, say that if you want to understand why South African Jewelry remains, even the non-religious part, honest and erlich, it all traces back to Yisrael Solanter. What is the impact of Rav Yisrael Solanter today? And is the Musar movement still alive today?
1: You know, uh, that's a very, very great question. Um, again, Rabbi Tata's observation uh, makes a lot of sense to me because the South African Jewish communities overwhelmingly of Lithuanian origin. Uh, And as a result, there was this emphasis of Ridos Fovos that became Rush. Although people say, you know, we talk about the Kalta Litvak, the Litvak without emotion. Well, maybe that's, Litvak is not emotionally expressive, but there is a basic foundational decency in Bein Adem that there is no question, comes from um, Rabbi Saul Salanter and his Talmidim Whose main area of influence was indeed uh, Lithuania, the Lithuania, Lithuania world. Now, is the Musr movement successful? It's very, very interesting. You know, you could say it either way. On one hand, there's no question that every yeshiva worth its salt today, or at least 90% of the yeshivas, make time for Musr and they talk about Musr. And, uh, you know, it'll be a half an hour a day, whatever it is. So, in many, many ways, Um, his radical teaching became conventional wisdom in the Torah world. On the other hand, it is in such an attenuated, watered-down form that in many, many ways, his fondest dreams were not realized. And in that sense, uh, the Musra movement failed to accomplish what it could have accomplished. Musra now, in a typically yeshiva, is kind of a 15 minute afterthought that you've got to tack on and a lot of people skip it they'll learn halakha or whatever it is or they'll just leave early or the like Uh, what happened to the Musar Vaj? what happened to the Feshman Nefesh? what happened to the introspection? what happened to the Musar Be'ezpailas? you don't see too much of that I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all but it's certainly not commonplace so in a sense it's almost as if Rabbi Israel has a paper victory meaning on paper, sure, we believe in musr. In practice, a lot of what musr represents is actually not carried out. This is why Revolva tried, and, and, and Bergen, he was master to some degree, uh, to create the base Musur, uh and the like. And I have to say, in Yerushalayim at least, and I think in different places even in America, uh, there is an attempt with some, with some moderate success to create Musar Vads, both for men and for women, and that's a tremendously important thing. But I have to say, it's still not widespread. So, in many ways, I think all we can hope for is that Rabbi Yisrael's ideas will have a comeback. There'll be a tchiasa mesa, because unfortunately, uh, they have not been as widespread as they should have been.
0: This has been absolutely fascinating, and I know we can continue and continue, but. That time is up. Um, right, which thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It was really my pleasure and much luck and everything.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.